when uh, when we were talking about what we what we would do, um, the idea of uh, a couple of afternoon sessions came up, and I thought, well, you know, what might be helpful is if we did something that was more, let's say, historically oriented, but yet connected to to revival. And so, um, my uh, my theological hero is. Uh, is Jonathan Edwards, and we'll talk about Edwards in just a, a second. I, um, years ago, um, well, a few years ago, bought a, a little um, little bust of Jonathan Edwards, and I put it up on, we have a, a shelf over our dining room table, and I put that there, and um, I thought it was a great idea, and my wife didn't notice it for a few days, and then one night we were eating dinner, and she says, I don't feel very comfortable with Jonathan Edwards watching us while we're eating dinner. <laughs> so, uh, so he's in my office now. But, um, so how many of you are, are familiar with, uh, to some degree, Jonathan Edwards? Okay, all right. So Edwards was born in 1703. And he was born in what would have been, uh, at the time, uh, British colonies. Um, So Edwards didn't view himself as an American because there was no such thing as an American at that time. You had British colonists. And he was born into a home. Um, His father was a pastor, Timothy uh, uh, Edwards, and he was a powerful preacher actually saw uh, revivals in his ministry. But Edwards was one uh, at one out of ten, and he had nine sisters. And he was the youngest. So he was, he was, really, he was really babied by nine older sisters. And uh, anyway, so he was an incredibly uh, precocious child. He was uh, super intelligent. He went to uh, Yale and he was um, he was around twelve or thirteen years old. Now that sounds remarkable to us. It was it was unusual in the day, but it wasn't unheard of. Um, his father had taught him uh, Greek and Latin. Uh, Edwards excelled in Latin, and so Edwards went on and he earned a, a Master of Arts at Yale, and then. He went on to pastor a little church in New York and only lasted about a year. And then he went back to Yale as a tutor. And he, during all this time, he was, he was unconverted. He was very religious. He, was, uh, he had just um, a very upright life. Um, and then God actually saved him. And uh, he ended up going to Northampton Congregational Church in Northampton, Massachusetts, and his, uh, his maternal grandfather was Solomon Stoddard. Now, Solomon Stoddard was by far the most famous preacher. Him and Cotton Mather were the, by far the most famous preachers in New England. And in fact, uh, Solomon Stoddard pastored the church there in Northampton for uh, 60 years. And so Edwards comes on as his grandfather's assistant. And his grandfather's a powerful, powerful man. You have to remember back in those days, the most educated people in the community, of course, were ministers. 
And the most influential people in the community were ministers. So that's not the case anymore, in case you haven't noticed. And so, um, so they actually called Solomon's daughter the Pope of the Connecticut River Valley, right? He was just, he was a minister of ministers. Edwards uh, is pastoring with him, and he, uh, Solomon's daughter dies um, Edwards' third year into the ministry there. And, um, and so Edwards is, um, he's growing as a preacher. He becomes a preacher par excellence. In fact, in a day where travel was difficult, um, Edwards often found himself being invited to go on preaching tours, which of course ended up being on horseback, and he would go around traveling and, and preaching. And he started writing, and he started putting his sermons into print. And in 1734 and 35, the church in Northampton actually experienced an awakening. It was, um, it's sometimes it's called the Connecticut River Valley Revival. And it lasted for almost two years, but it was very localized. And it's during that time Edwards writes some significant things, giving an account of those revivals, of that revival. But it really was 1740 to 42 is what we call the Great Awakening. And the Great Awakening uh, affects not only New England, but actually down uh, through the Carolinas. And it was basically all of the British colonies were affected. Um, and, and there was an evangelical revival going on in England at the same time. We'll talk more about that tomorrow. But what I want to talk about uh, today is actually Jonathan Edwards' revival and world missions. So Edwards has uh, 10 daughters himself and a son, and weird how that works, but Jonathan Edwards ends up having a massive influence on world missions, and his view of revival and world missions actually go hand in hand, and we're going to talk about just a couple of ways that Edwards influenced world missions and how that influence actually is with us today, even though he died in 1758, all right? So in 1747, so a few years after the Great Awakening, Jonathan and his wife Sarah, and a wonderful godly woman, uh, can we take time for questions at the end? Okay. Uh, Ask me about biographies on Jonathan and Sarah, and I'll, I'll give you some good ones. So Jonathan and Sarah, what they would do is they opened their house to ministerial candidates, so in those days, you often didn't go to a seminary. There, were, there, there was Yale, but Yale wasn't technically a seminary. It was a, it was a university. So what would happen is pastors would open their homes and have ministerial candidates live with them. Uh, well, the Edwards would have ministerial candidates who um, some went into the ministry, the pastorate, and some went into missions. And so the Edwards home was often open Two two missionary candidates, uh, Elihu Spencer and Job Strong, both spent time in the Edwards home and went on to make a tremendous impact, um, uh, especially missions to Native Americans. That was, in, in a sense, that was the mission field if you were in New England, all right? So, um, there was a guy by the name of David Brainerd. Oh, yeah. 
okay? And David Brainerd arrives in Northampton, and uh, he arrives in 1747 in May, and he ends up dying in the Edwards home October 9th of the same year. And, and so you might know that David Brainerd was, had been a Yale student. We'll talk about his life in a second. Um, but he had been a missionary to the Indians. And so Edwards, um, his, his family is ministering and caring for Brainerd. In fact, uh, Edwards' beloved daughter, Jerusha, would actually be uh, Brainerd's primary nurse. She, too, would contract what at that time was called consumption. We know it as tuberculosis, and she would die in February 14th of the following year. And so what Edwards does is he begins to take uh, Brainerd's diary and begins to go through it and what he does is he, in, in December of 1748, he publishes an account of the life of the late Reverend David Brainerd. And, um, and so uh, Edwards takes up this project. And um, let me just tell you, let me jump ahead in the story for a second. So Edwards is not um, just a... Edwards is not just a, uh, an admirer of missions from a distance, helping missionaries, helping Brainerd. Um, Edwards will end up being fired from his congregation. He pastors there in Northampton for 22 years. Could you imagine being the church that fired Jonathan Edwards? Anyway, Edwards gets fired and um, he has offers from Scotland. He has offers from other places in New England. He's very popular. Uh, and what he does is he ends up going to Stockbridge, Massachusetts, which is uh, basically an, an Indian mission outpost. Now, you have to remember that these are still the days where even in Massachusetts, that was uh, uh, Western Massachusetts would have been the wilderness, and so Edwards actually moves, he stays in Stockbridge and is installed as, and this is just the language of the day, he's installed as the white and Indian pastor. And so he ministers for eight years to the Indians and, and, and actually runs the Indian school there in Stockbridge. And so um, after the, by the way, that was an incredibly fruitful time for Edwards' ministry. Some of the, the most profound things that he writes, he writes during that period of, in a sense, kind of being away uh, in the wilderness. Uh, he then is called to uh, become the president of Princeton, and um, at that time, it was just the College of New Jersey. His oldest daughter, Esther, had married a young man by the name of Aaron Burr Sr. Okay. Aaron Burr Sr. was the president at the College of New Jersey. Aaron Burr Sr. dies of smallpox. And so the trustees of the college call Edwards to become the president. He reluctantly does it. He said his Hebrew was rusty. 
<laughs> and um, that he really wasn't, uh, he, he really didn't see himself as a seminary president, but everybody from friends in Scotland to friends in the colonies, they were all urging him to take the post. So Edwards was actually quite the, um, quite the um, um, let's say, technologically oriented guy for his age. He's always thinking about things that are, um, you know, advances in science and, and, um, and, and understanding things like that. And so he takes a, an experimental smallpox vaccine and ends up contracting um, the smallpox. And he dies in 1758, only 30 days after taking up the presidency at uh, the College of New Jersey. Now, all of that uh, to simply say that throughout Edwards' ministry, um, he's constantly involved in missions. He's constantly thinking about the cause of God and of, and of Christ. And in fact, in 1755, three years before Edward's death, his own son, Jonathan Edwards Jr., leaves for a year mission among the Indians. Um, and so uh, there are two things that Edwards does that actually have deeply impacted world missions to this day. And the first is the publication of Brainerd's diary. So David Brainerd was born April 20th, 1718 in Connecticut. Both parents died when he was a young boy and, uh, and, and all of his siblings died. And so he was given to what in those days was called melancholy. And uh, he goes off to Yale and he's an outstanding, outstanding scholar as a young man. And he enters Yale at 20 years old. Uh, he was not converted until he was 21. And he speaks of his own conversion. And for the sake of time, I won't read the, the details of it, but it was absolutely just this remarkable time where he goes out and he's, the Lord's drawing him and God just opens his heart and his mind in profound ways. So this radically changes Brainerd. And so Brainerd, as he starts Yale, he suffers from the measles and he starts spitting up blood. So he has to take some time off from school because of what clearly ends up being the beginning of tuberculosis. But it's during his absence that actually Yale begins to experience this incredible revival under the preaching of George Whitfield. And Gilbert Tennant. Now, Gilbert Tennant is not nearly as well known, but he should be. Because he had a powerful influence. He's, uh, the, the Tennants actually started the Log College for pastors, which ends up becoming Princeton Seminary. So, Edwards is invited to come and give the commencement address at Yale in 1741. And the trustees actually invite Edwards. So you have to understand, Edwards is a towering intellectual, okay? He's, he is genuinely brilliant. And so the trustees of Yale are dealing with what they would have called enthusiasm. There's a revival going on. And so Edwards actually is brought to give the commencement address, hoping, the trustees are hoping, that Edwards is going to come along and actually dampen some of the enthusiasm 
And instead, what Edwards does is Edwards gives a commencement address called The Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Spirit of God. Needless to say, the trustees weren't happy with Edwards' choice of a topic. And so the revival at Yale actually ends up causing many of the professors to become, um, to come under suspicion that they're unconverted, right? So you can imagine what's going on. So you've got, you've got a university and you've got students and they are being converted and there's revival happening. And now all of a sudden they start realizing, you know what? Most of our professors don't know Jesus, And so, the professors, the very day of Edward's commencement, issue this notice. If any student of this college shall directly or indirectly say that the rector, either of the trustees or tutors, are hypocrites, carnal, or unconverted men, he shall for the first offense make a public confession in the hall, and for the second offense he shall be expelled so Brainerd actually is completely unaware of the, of the notice and he, somebody overhears him telling a friend that he believes that his tutor, so his tutors, they were like exalted teaching assistants who would teach classes, that his tutor had no more grace than that chair. <laughs> Brainerd isn't given a warning, he's expelled. And of course, he was, he was deeply hurt by the expulsion. And yet it was at that point that what does God do in the, in the midst of this incredible disappointment is he calls David Brainerd as a missionary to the Indians. And the story is actually moving. If you've read even, even parts of David Brainerd's uh, uh, diary or his story, uh, it is amazing. There were efforts even made by Jonathan Edwards to get him restated as a student. But in 1742, so remember the, the end of the, of the First Great Awakening, Brainerd's appointed missionary to the Indians, and his missionary exploits are legendary, but so is his introspection, his labors, and his sufferings. There are accounts, his own accounts, of him riding his horse to get to the next Indian village in a blizzard and he would have a coughing fit that would lead to him passing out. He'd fall off the horse. His horse would just stay there until he woke back up. He would get up, ask God for forgiveness and get back on his horse and make his way to the village to preach the gospel. So he dies, as I mentioned, of TB in the Edwards home, October 9, 1747. And so David Brainerd's diary um, is um, what any diary is. It's just a daily record of your life. Now, David Brainerd lived only to be 29 years, 5 months, and 19 days. He'd only been a Christian for 8 years when he died, and had only been a missionary for 4 years. And, okay, so, so think about that. He dies at 29, Christian for 8 years, missionary for 4 years. When Edwards publishes his, his diary in 1749, it has never been out of print since Edward fir- first put it into publication in 1749. 
And so the impact of David Brainerd's diary was far and wide. In fact, even John Wesley, who was certainly no friend of of Edward's theology or Brainerd's, encouraged all of his Methodist circuit-riding preachers to take along with them a Bible and, of course, David Brainerd's biography. Um, Henry Martin, another famous uh, missionary to India, died at age 31, um, actually continually, I perused the life of David Brainerd. His soul was filled with a holy emulation of that of an extraordinary man. And after deep consideration and fervent prayer, he was at length fixed in resolution to imitate his example. In other words, Henry Martin reads the biography and what happens? It moves him to want to actually emulate David Brainerd and follow his example. And of course, it leads him to becoming a famous missionary to India. By the way, long before William Carey ever got there. Um, other missionaries that, that attribute their call to the mission field to David Brainerd's diary would be William Carey, Robert Morrison to China, Robert Murray McShane to what was then known as Palestine, David Livingston to the interior of Africa, Andrew Murray, and even just less than 100 years ago, Jim Elliott who treasured David Brainerd's diary and saw it as, as, as inspiration for his own mission's work. And so David Brainerd's diary, by the way, is not some sort of romanticized missionary tale, right? By the way, those never help anybody. You read a romanticized missionary tale, then you get to the mission field, and then you realize you've been sold a bill of goods, right? Um, David Brainerd's biography is is filled with suffering. It's filled with depression. It's filled uh, at times with struggles to love the Indians. But it's also filled with the triumph of God's grace and the gospel in four short years. And so for Edwards, of course, his relationship with Brainerd cost him his own daughter. But this is what Edwards said. He said, I would conclude my observations on the merciful circumstances of Mr. Brainerd's death without acknowledging with thankfulness the gracious dispensation of providence to me and my family in so ordering that he should come to my house in his last sickness And should die here. So that we had opportunity for much acquaintance and conversation with him. And to show him kindness in such circumstances. And see his dying behavior. To hear his dying speeches. To receive his dying counsels. And to have the benefit of his dying prayers. So the impact of of Edwards first on world missions. That lasts to this day. Was in publishing Brainerd's diary. And I would say that even uh, in what we would call the modern missionary movement, starting with William Carey and Adoniram Judson and others, uh, David Brainerd's biography, his diary, actually was in, in many ways one of the primary sparks that set that movement aflame. 
And of course, we have ultimately God to thank for it, but through Jonathan Edwards. The next thing that Edwards does that ends up making a massive impact on the idea of world mission and revival is that in he writes a book called, and it, all Puritan titles are long, all right? So it is an humble attempt to promote explicit agreement and visible union of God's people in extraordinary prayer for the revival and religion and advancement of Christ's kingdom on earth, okay? Now, paper was expensive, so you had to get as much on each page as you possibly could, and so you wanted the title to be as, as descriptive as possible. So, um, this little book, by the way, it's not, it's not very long, this little book has a certain origin and influence. I just want to read to you. This is, um, this is from John Piper. He says, In October 1744, a group of ministers from Scotland formed a union for prayer. Their aim was that the first Tuesday of every quarter would be set aside for what was called United Extraordinary Supplications to the God of All Grace to revive true religion and to bless the nations with the unspeakable benefits of our glorious Redeemer. In other words, these Scottish ministers were getting together the first Tuesday of every quarter and they were praying not only for revival but for the advancement of the gospel. The movement becomes known as, a, as the Concert of Prayer and a plea was sent to America to join the movement. And Jonathan Edwards at that time 42-year-old pastor. And he was ready to take up the challenge. So he writes back to Scotland, says Piper, when the fires of the Great Awakening had cooled and said, we've been rebuked for our self-confidence and for trusting in the arm of the flesh. And God is now showing us that we are nothing. We cannot help ourselves. We know not what to do. Our eyes are upon thee. Oh Lord. And so you have to understand the timing of the concert of prayer and their appeal to Edwards. So the Great Awakening, the Great Awakening lasts less than two years. And as it, as it dies out, there are, of course, all kinds of questions as to what, what led to it to die out. And uh, part of what we're going to see tomorrow is Edward's work on the religious affections is actually um, his, um, his mature reflection on what really constitutes a work of God in the soul, Okay. But now, as he sees the fires of the awakening waning and having gone out, they feel a sense of, of humility before God. And so, what, what do you do when the fires of awakening begin to dwindle and die out? And for Edwards and all of those Scottish pastors, the answer was really simple. You start to pray. Lord, there's nothing we can do. We lift our eyes to you and to you alone. And so this ends up launching this cooperative effort uh, to start. Um, it was a seven-year project. Monthly concerts of prayer for the revival of the church and the salvation 
what they would have called the heathen nations, we would call them unreached people groups. And so Edwards publishes a humble attempt because what he's now going to do is he sees the importance of this concerted prayer for revival and the advancement of the gospel. And so he writes this little pamphlet that we're just going to simply call a humble attempt. And because it would be really long if I said the title every time I referred to it. And so Edwards writes humble attempt. Now humble attempt does not sell like Brainerd's diary cells, but the movement itself that is being, in a sense, promoted in that work, according to historian Nathan Flynn, makes Edwards the grandfather of the modern missionary movement. And so in 17, just to demonstrate that, in 1784, a particular Baptist, that's a Calvinistic Baptist, which by the way, most Baptists in those days were Calvinistic Baptists, a guy named John Sutcliffe, he actually gets a box of books from a friend in Scotland. And guess what's in that box? A humble attempt. Sutcliffe is so moved by a humble attempt that he republishes it himself, starts circulating it to all of his pastor friends, and organizes a monthly prayer meeting for the coming of the kingdom of Christ and for the conversion of the heathen. The influence was absolutely amazing, not only in, in, in Sutcliffe's day, but Robert Hall and Andrew Fuller, so did the name Andrew Fuller mean anything to you? Okay, so Andrew Fuller is a Baptist pastor who does more by staying home to promote world missions than going to be a missionary. He wanted to be a missionary. But he has some friends, like a guy named William Carey. Okay? Terry actually describes Andrew Fuller's role of staying at home. And that is, um, you're at home holding the rope. Okay, holding the rope. And so Robert Hall, Andrew Fuller, they are writing against hyper-Calvinism, which by the way was a blight on the church in their day. And, and so they believe that what we need to do is we need to promote a view of missions, right? Because hyper-Calvinism historically always um, uh, cuts the nerve of mission activity. Hyper-Calvinism always cuts the nerve of evangelistic activity, right? And so here's Sutcliffe and Andrew Fuller, and they say, what can we do to actually help promote a healthy vision of world mission? And what do they do? Them, along with um, John Rylands and William Carey, actually put <laughs> humble attempt back into print, and so, uh, Nathan Flynn notes, he says, by the early 1800s, the missionary awakening had crossed the Atlantic, and between 1800 and 1810, numerous local missionary societies were formed in the Northeast. Many of these societies either supported the various mission, British mission societies or focused on evangelizing Native Americans. In 1810, Congregationalists in New England formed a missionary society followed by the Baptists. 
Baptists. Adoniram Judson, the Congregationalist turned Baptist, was the central figure in the formation of these mission societies. And in 1820, American Methodists established the Methodist Episcopal Church Missionary Society. And so what ends up happening is what we know now is the modern missionary movement, which began with, with Carey and, and Andrew Fuller and John Rylands and and uh, and then uh, a few years later, Adoniram Judson. By the way, if you want to read a missionary biography that will stir your soul, read To the Golden Shore. Story of Adoniram Judson. These people suffered for the sake of the gospel, saw very little fruit oftentimes. And yet, what was it that actually ends up creating, that ends up sparking the modern missionary movement? It is people getting a hold of a humble attempt, reading it, circulating it, and realize that we have to start praying for the advancement of the gospel because that is what the church should be about. Even in our own generation, men like David Bryant, who has been a a, a massive influence in terms of mobilizing the church to pray for unreached peoples and to organize concerts of prayer, he himself was influenced by Edward's humble attempt. So what, what is this humble attempt all about? Well, let me, let me just read to you the main text. So if you had a Puritan sermon, you read a text. You had a text. Then you briefly expounded the text. Then you drew doctrine from the text. And then you applied the text. Okay, that, was, that was standard structure. So the text for humble attempt is Zechariah chapter 8, verses 20 to 22. And it says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, It it will yet be that peoples will come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one will go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will also go. So many peoples and mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and entreat the favor of the Lord. And so Edwards opens up the text and then uh, as is typical, he, he starts, moves into second. The, the second part of a humble attempt is actually the motive to compliance um, with the text. Seek the favor of the Lord. So that the nations come, right? And so then he deals with objections in part three. And so Edwards actually sees the Old Testament prophecies of the advancement of Christ's kingdom, especially in Zechariah, as directly related to prayer. And so he says in a humble attempt, there is a duty for God's people to pray and to be in union as they pray. He goes on at the, towards the end of a humble attempt. He says, We may learn from the tenor of this prophecy, together with the context, that this union in such prayer is foretold as a becoming and happy thing, and that which would be acceptable to God and attended with glorious success. In other words, if we, if we take to heart what this 
text is telling us to seek the favor of the Lord so that the nations come, then we will find that it, was, it is a becoming thing, that is a, a, a beautiful thing, and it will be a happy thing. The church, the church will actually be happy as they're praying for the salvation of the nations, and it would be a most acceptable thing to God that the church do this, and it will be met with glorious success. He says, from the whole, we may infer that it is a very suitable thing and well-pleasing to God for many people in different parts of the world by express agreement to come into a visible union in extraordinary, speedy, fervent, and constant prayer for those great effusions of the Holy Spirit, which shall bring on that advancement of Christ's church and kingdom that God has so often promised shall be in the latter ages of the world. And so, from hence, I would infer the duty of God's people with regard to the memorial lately sent over into America from Scotland by a number of ministers there proposing a method of such a union as has been spoken of in extraordinary prayer for this great mercy. He concludes with this. The word of God is full of precepts, encouragements, and examples tending to excite and induce the people of God to be much in prayer for this mercy. In other words, Edward says, you go to your Bible and what do you see? You see uh, inducements all over the place. To actually boldly go and to ask great things from God. Right? And so, here's, here's one of the... Uh, can we talk a little bit the, uh, theology right now? Okay. One of the, one of the downsides of, um, in a sense, sort of the predominant theological perspective that's, that has been the churches for the last 150 years, especially in America, is that it's... it's it's instilled a pessimism, okay? And that pessimism is that um, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. So what do we do? Well, let's hunker down, build better fortifications, and wait for the end. That's basically the, the, the perspective. And, and Edwards actually believed, if you read your Bible, you can't do that. If you read your Bible, you end up finding that God himself is inviting the people of God to pray and to pray for his glory and the advancement of Christ's kingdom and to pray for great things. And God finds those prayers not only acceptable, but he will grant them success. And so, by the way, that perspective is far more the, the, a, a more historical perspective so, in, in our church, we sing all the time, um, uh, John Newton's, Come uh, my soul, thy suit prepare. You ever sing that? Come thy soul, my suit prepare. Jesus loves to answer prayer. So, there's a line in there that says, um, Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such that none can ever ask too much. Okay. So, 
Edwards believed that the kingdom of Christ would actually spread throughout the world through, not through political processes. He believed that the kingdom of Christ would spread throughout the entire world through outpourings of the Holy Spirit. It would actually be the gospel that would advance and conquer how? Through revival, through awakening. Okay? And so, Edwards says, in a piece there, in, in a humble attempt, he says, it's natural and reasonable to suppose that the whole world should finally be given to Christ as one whose right it is to reign, as the proper heir of him who was originally the king of all nations and the possessor of heaven and earth. And the scripture teaches us that God the Father has constituted his son as God-man and in his kingdom of grace or mediatorial kingdom to be the heir of the world. That he might in this kingdom have the heathen for his inheritance and the utmost ends of the earth for his possession. And if you read it, you, by the way, you can go to, uh, I'll, I'll tell you how to get Edward's stuff in a minute. Everything he says is just text after text after text after text. All right. Then he says, the future promised advancement of the kingdom of Christ is an event unspeakably happy and glorious. The scriptures speak of that time as a time wherein God and his son Jesus Christ will be most eminently glorified on earth. So in other words, Edwards was incredibly optimistic about the spread of the gospel. He was incredibly optimistic about the advancement of, of God's kingdom. And, and so, um, you know, it's, it's easy to actually look around uh, the world and um, I'm sure that you've heard of the 1040 window. It is, um, it is that section of the world where there is the most concentrated um, uh, inhabitation of, of Muslims throughout the whole world, okay? And it is a dark place. Okay, so they had Muslims in, in, in Edward's day, obviously. But Edwards actually believed that Jesus was going to actually, in his words, would actually come and redeem the Turks. Okay, okay. So, so he, he did not see any darkness in this world that was impenetrable. He saw all darkness in this world simply as opportunity for the light of the gospel and the power of the kingdom to make inroads and to advance. And so, whatever, whatever your millennial view is, I think we all could use some of Edward's optimism. So, Edward's life exhibits, first of all, a consistent and intense interest in missions. Okay. Why? Well, because he had an intense interest in the advancement of Christ's kingdom. How? Through revival, through awakening. And so this compels him to open his home, send his own kid to be a missionary, have interest in Indian missions, to promote the life of David Brainerd, to take up mission himself, labor and organize concerts of prayer to advance the cause of Christ among the nations. And so what are the lessons for us? Let me, just give you, let me just give you three. One, um, read missionary biographies. Okay? Read missionary biographies. Some of the, some of the most soul-stirring biographies, I love biography, um, some of the most soul-stirring biographies are of the great missionaries. Okay? Not guys that walked on water. Okay? 
but guys that knew what it was to live in danger, to suffer, to bury wife after wife and child after child in a foreign place, all for the sake of Christ. What? List three. three. Okay. So John G. Payton, okay, okay. Uh, the Banner of Truth edition. There actually are other biographies of John G. Payton. And if you don't want a huge book, read uh, the children's version. (laughs) Sometimes when I want to get a quick overview, I'll read a kid's book because there are so many good ones. So John G. Payton, he was missionary to the New Hebrides, which now today is Vanuatu. Um, I would say also then... Um, to the Golden Shore by Adoniram, or about Adoniram Judson, and then um, uh, the one by his first wife Nancy. It's written by uh, Sharon, um, ah, and it's called "My Heart in His Hand" or something like that. And it's um, the the exact title. <laughs> Ten years ago, I didn't have this problem. Um, but, if, <laughs> um, yeah, Sharon something or other. Uh, anyway, but his, so his first wife, actually, you, you got to read that. You got to read that. It's so, it is so, so good. Um, and I'll find the title or maybe somebody can look it up. So read missionary biographies. Read them, read them in family worship. When you have kids at home, read them missionary biographies. And there's a, there's a whole series, and there's, I mean, different publishers. Uh, Reformation Heritage Books does a great job of doing kids' books about heroes of the faith. Read your kids' missionary biographies. Let them see what men and women have been willing to do for the sake of the kingdom of God. And so... Read missionary biographies, um, read them to your kids, read them for yourself. So I try to read at least one biography a year, typically more than that. So this year, I'm focusing on Robert Murray McShane. Now, McShane is not maybe as well known, but McShane also died, by the way, at 29. It's amazing how many of these guys died so young. McShane actually ministers in Dundee, Scotland, but actually takes a mission trip. He's really good at Hebrew. Takes a mission trip to what was then called Palestine to evangelize the Jews. If you think that Jewish evangelism is only a thing for dispensationalists, you're absolutely incorrect. The the first um, concerted effort at Jewish evangelism happened with Scottish Presbyterians. Two, take an interest in living missionaries. (laughs) All right? Don't let your only acquaintance be with people that have been in the ground for 200 years. Okay? Take an interest in living missionaries and have missionaries in your home. Let your kids get exposed. So one of the things that my kids look back at is they think of all of the people that we've had in our homes over the years and the impact that that had on them. And some of them were missionaries and others were pastors. 
as a church, take a vital interest in missionaries. Build relationships. Most missionaries will tell you that they feel incredibly alone. The church sends in the check and that's about the extent. Have a missions committee that gets together that does what? That actually contacts your missionaries, sends your missionaries um, uh, care packages. Um, uh, you know, so right now we have a missionary that actually was grew up in our church, and she is in Poland. And so at Christmas time, you know what we do? We put a box out there, and everybody puts Christmas cards in there, and little, you know, all kinds of stuff. And we send that to her. We zoom with her about two or three times a year. We have a missions committee that actually is constantly talking with her. But we have that contact. Don't don't just look at missions as a as a budget line because really you're partnering with those missionaries because there's only two kinds of people in the church okay those that go and those that send right and so if you're a sender know your goers all right number three and this is This is what totally attracted me to coming here. Pray not only for your missionaries, but pray for the kingdom of Christ to expand through evangelism, missions, and revival. When Mickey and JT told me, we spend, was it 21 days, right? We have a prayer and fasting time every year for revival. So I I hope that you can see actually revival is never separated from from world missions. It's it's actually hand in glove. Um, That thrilled me. Absolutely thrilled me, brother, to know that you guys dedicate that time. So in our church, what we do is we take... Um, typically the first Sunday of, of every quarter in Sunday school, and we have a concert of prayer for our missionaries. So we'll have them send us little videos, right? Um, and so we've got, we've, got, we've got maybe eight missionaries that we, that we heavily support. We don't believe in sending each one $25, okay? The, don't do that. Um, if you support them, support them vibrantly, okay? But then have that context. So we take, we take the first Sunday school hour of, of every quarter and we then have a concert of prayer. And so we have interaction, reports are given, and then we break up into groups and we pray for our missionaries. And so we have every reason to be optimistic and to have, and to have genuine biblical motivation to pray and to pray for revival, to pray for awakening, and to pray for the advance of the gospel throughout the world. So here's, here's, here's the bottom line, and this is, this is what should motivate all of us. In the end, we win. And we win big. And we are, we are a tiny part of something that's massive. 
None of us are going to have the influence of Jonathan Edwards, all right? I mean, his influence is felt to this day, and he died in 1758. But do you know that God has given each of us and our churches a responsibility to be engaged in these things for the glory of Christ? Amen.